This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, Go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Well, thank you, Dr. Atterbury, and it's good to be back with you for this fourth and final session as we look at a game plan for life. Not to be redundant, but in case you were not here for the first three very quickly, in session one we talked about planning, the importance of planning, and that it begins with God. And that we should plan because it's biblical, we should plan because life is short, we should plan because we want to live with intentionality, and we should plan so that we can focus on God's best for our life. In session two we talked about the tyranny of the urgent, how that Jesus combated the tyranny of the urgent, not with hard work, not with being people-focused, though he was both, but he combated that by each and every day beginning his day with the Lord, in communion with the Lord, getting his instructions for that day as it pertained to the master plan. The last session, we looked at how to invest our time and that we should invest our time, not spend our time or waste our time. And the way to do that is to get serious, to abide in Christ with that God consciousness at all times, to inspect what God expects to write it down, and then to live with a spirit of discernment and a spirit of discipline. And this last session is going to be very practical. And so if you weren't in the first three, it may be a little bit more difficult to follow what we're going to do in this session as it pertains to actually putting together a game plan for life. This is based upon a discipleship slash leadership process that um, taking some guys through, I'm in the second cohort of doing this with a colleague by the name of Roger Smithson back in Conway. And we have seen some great results of taking the information that comes from discipleship and working to see a transformation that comes from building that into a game plan for life. As we've talked about, a team would never think of taking the field without a game plan. A ship would never leave the harbor without a chartered course. A house would never be built without a blueprint. And so when it comes to life, the game plan for life is to give us some very clear and practical day-by-day instructions for achieving what we wrote in our eulogy, for achieving what we want to hear on the final day of judgment. A game plan for life focusing on the fundamentals. Well, what is a game plan for life? A game plan for life, as you see in your outline, is a written document that serves as a guide to steer the process of one becoming the person God would have him be in accomplishing God's plan for his life. What is the purpose of the life plan? Well, the life plan provides a written strategy to move from the lofty softy of conceptual thinking to the nitty-gritty of everyday life. Once one determines what God would have him or her do with his or her life, the life plan will help them stop drifting and stay focused upon what is important. So again, moving from information to transformation in a very methodical way through what we call 
a game plan for life. On page 18, what is the basic process of developing a life plan? Well, it begins by defining reality. Define reality, that is, the man that I currently am. And then discerning God's will, the man that God wants me to be. It's a process of being very intentional, establishing godly habits and disciplines so that each day of our life contributes in a meaningful way toward becoming a godly man. Someone has said we tend to be long on knowledge, but short on obedience. How true that is today, is it not? So how do we become more obedient in a methodical way? How do we get that in writing in such a way that it makes a difference and leads from information to transformation? Well, in working with these men that we've worked with over the last couple of years, in putting together this game plan for life, we gave them a head start by helping identify what we call some fundamentals of being a man. Remember in our analogy, we go back to all the tasks, all the things that we have to do in life. If we were to stack that up in a bar graph on this side of the stage, it would go out the ceiling. It would be a chimney effect. On this side, remember our bar graph would be the time that we have to do all of this, and it would be down here. So there's this conundrum between the time that we have and all the things that we have to do. Well, with these tasks, going back to that example that we've used throughout these sessions, with all these tasks that we have, if we were to categorize all those tasks into just five basic categories, what what we've tried to help these men do is to categorize all of this basically into our faith, our family, our friends, our finances, and our fitness. As you look on page 19, you see that faith is at the, at the center of the fundamental game plan for life. Obviously, it is through faith that we accept Jesus as our Savior. Our salvation is a product of our faith. And we also know that faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So faith is at the center of our game plan for life. Everything that we do is based upon our faith, based upon the teachings of the Word of God. The logic behind family is that we are admonished as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, according to Ephesians chapter 5. We are also admonished in Ephesians 6 to nurture our children. To nurture our children really means to provide a godly environment within our family to raise these children. And then we are told that we are to provide for our family. And if we do not provide for our family, we are worse than an infidel. Worse than an unbeliever if we, if we choose not to provide adequately for our family. So obviously family would be something that I think would be a priority. Friends. We've talked about this week how that Jesus was in the people business and we are to be in the people business. And the closest type of friend we can have and the type of friend that we want to be is one who pushes another closer to Christ, which is what we usually call discipleship, is it not? And then our finances. Why would we include that as one of the fundamentals? Well, Jesus had more to say about this topic than any other topic, single topic in the New Testament. Because there is this constant battle between mammon and God in the life of of people. And so finances is one of the fundamentals that we've identified. And then the last one, our fitness, really refers to our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this week how that One of the greatest assets that God gives us is time and energy. Why? Because it is the time and energy we're given in these bodies that allows us to accomplish 
his will. So these are the five fundamentals that we have focused upon in working with these men. And as we start this process, we don't, we don't mandate that they use these five. They're welcome to come up with, with any five that they have. But hopefully after we've gone through a process of teaching them over a year and they begin to devise their game plan for life, it's going to be somewhere in the vicinity of these five that I have mentioned. Now, let's talk for just a moment about fundamentals. The importance of fundamentals. Fundamentals always come first. Always come first. No matter the discipline, fundamentals come first. Probably the most used analogy when it comes to fundamentals would go back to Lombardi and the Packers. If you learn to block, you learn to tackle, I'll make champions out of you. And of course, that's exactly what he did with multiple world championships. They didn't do anything fancy. They didn't have any trick plays. They focused on the fundamentals and they became the best at what they did. Fundamentals are simple, but they require patience. Fundamentals must be mastered. Fundamentals require a continual focus. It's not something we learn and then we leave. Fundamentals are universal. They're the same for everyone. Fundamentals, when lost, are always found through humility. And fundamentals never change. Like principles, they stay the same. Well, our goal with the men's discipleship, MD5 as we have termed it, as we work with these men, is to develop spiritual habits and disciplines around these five basic fundamentals of living the Christian life. And through this process, we certainly realize that, that this is not a process that is going to create a complete and mature believer. This process is not designed to replace disciple way or, or other discipleship processes perhaps that you're using in your church. From our perspective, this process is, is used to create and cultivate in their heart a yearning to go deeper into the truths of God's Word. If I can just be candid, some of the men that we're working with, if we were to say, we want to get together and study the Bible together, they wouldn't come. But when we approach them to say, would you like to be a better husband, a better father? Would you like to be a better friend? Would you like to understand how to manage your finances better? Would you like to understand how to take care of your body better? And knowing that faith is at the core of that, we've seen God do some amazing things through men that we probably wouldn't have an opportunity to disciple otherwise. So that's the approach that we've taken with men's discipleship, MD5. And the following is but a sample of the teaching that we, we share through this process. And again, this is going to be very pragmatic in our approach in the lecture this afternoon uh, as we try to tie some of these pearls together. We've looked at the conceptual, we've looked at the philosophical this week, and I want you to see just very practically some of the things that we're doing with these men in which we're working. Number one, the faith plan. As we work with these guys, we try to get them to recognize the Bible as authoritative in all aspects of life. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. How powerful that the Word of God is. I was listening to a, a seminary message the other day. Um, and I forget the, the individual's name. Forgive me. I can't cite exactly who it was. But he was telling of a missionary that had spoke in their, in their chapel at this seminary. And he mentioned that he had gone to Latin America. And, uh, and on, this, uh, on this missionary trip... He left some Bibles with, with those in the village, and, and one of the individuals in the village was a drug dealer. He was in the drug cartel down in, uh, in Latin America. And he didn't want to take the Bible, and the, the missionary persuaded him to take the Bible. And, and this guy was very open. He said, well, I'll take it. 
But he said, I'm going to use the pages in it to smoke. That's what they would use, that fine paper to roll up their, their weed, the, you know, their, their cigarette. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, you, you can use it to make your cigarette as long as you'll read it first. Will you promise? If you'll read it first, you can use it however you want to. So he agreed to do that. This missionary went back a couple of years later, and this individual had become a pastor in that village. This drug dealer had become a pastor. And so he began to talk with him about what had happened. And he said, well, preacher, he said, uh, he said, I'll smoke Matthew. I smoke Mark. I smoke Luke. He said, but John smoked me. The word of God, so powerful. We try to get these men to realize, many of which don't have a, a background in church or are necessarily a Christian background, not all of them, to understand that the Word of God truly is a lamp unto our feet. It truly is a light unto our path, and it is fundamental to putting together our game plan for life. We don't have to go elsewhere for answers. We find the answers to life's problems in the Word of God, and we can trust it with our lives. Uh, back in 2007, I was at the Adrian Rogers Preaching Conference at Mid-America Seminary, and James Merritt was speaking. He said, every day of our lives, God asks us a question. Do you trust me or not? Every day, God asks that question. Do you trust me or not? How do we respond to that? Well, we can trust the Word of God. We can trust the God of the Word. We also teach them to prioritize the great commandment, to love God and to love people. Is Jesus one of many or is Jesus the one and only? On these commandments, some of all of God's laws. We teach them to invest in the Great Commission, to share their faith. Once they've accepted Christ as Savior, the best thing they can do is share that same faith with others and lead others to follow Christ. And we teach them to think long term. Notice the epitaph, for longer-term commitments, plan 10 years in advance. For shorter-term, plan one year in advance. Remember, typically we overestimate what we can do in one year, underestimate what we can do in 10. And as it relates to leading people to Christ and discipling men, we like to put that on the radar, thinking out 10 years ahead, being very intentional, not as a program, not just as a number, but so that we prioritize what's important to God. In my life plan, which I've included in the, as an example, there's probably a whole lot more about me I'm revealing there than I would like to reveal to you in that life plan. But I wanted to give you an example of what we're talking about, so it's not just academic, but it's very pragmatic. But over the next 10 years, I want to work with 60 men, six men a year that I invest my life in. Uh, be very intentional about that. Be very prayerful about that. And we try to build that into their DNA. So when we look at practical application of the faith plan, first of all, we address the great commandment by making time for God, and we encourage them to read The Tyranny of the Urgent by Charles Hummel, some of which I have shared with you this week. We encourage them to engage in private worship each day as they, as they arise, to have a time of private worship, just to listen to a couple of songs. You can subscribe to Pandora or to... Uh, Apple Music or something like that if you wish, or you may just have something that other, something else that you want to, sh you want to, uh, to listen to. But, but I have found that if I begin my day just listening to a couple of songs, songs like How Deep the Father's Love for Us, uh, O Church Arise, 
in Christ alone to begin my day meditating on that praise and worship. I find to be so advantageous, starting our day in private worship. And then, daily Bible intake. Again, focusing on the Great Commandment. Reading through the New Testament is something we encourage them to do. Reading a proverb a day, memorizing one scripture per week, addressing the fundamentals of the Great Commandment. On page 21, we then identify and address the Great Commission, sharing your faith. If our, if our faith, our salvation, was the greatest gift that we've ever received, would it not stand to reason that it would be the greatest gift we could ever give? Absolutely. And so teaching them to share their faith, to learn the diagnostic questions of evangelism explosion, is one of the steps that we take. It certainly helps one size up, whether they know the full outline or not, it helps one size up what another thinks will get them, him or her to heaven. And then we're using the bridge illustration with these men at this point, because many of them are not prepared or not ready to take evangelism explosion, which we certainly want to encourage them to do, but we've gotten permission from the navigators to use the bridge illustration to at least be able to sit down and tell someone how to break the chasm between sin and heaven, what Jesus did for them with these basic scriptures. On page 35, I'm going to ask you to turn over there quickly so that you can see pragmatically what I'm talking about. Uh, this, this is an example of, of with, with my game plan for life, the faith plan portion of that. Again, taking it from the lofty softy to the nitty gritty. And on page 35, it just gives you uh, an example of, of what I'm talking about, putting this in black and white. So, for example, with my faith plan, maintaining a, quiet, a daily quiet time consisting of Bible reading, prayer, meditation, and private worship, memorizing a scripture each week, seeking a spiritual mentor, Read one book on evangelism. Read the Bible in 24 Hours by Chuck Missler. Read a book on end-time events. Read the freedom of self-forgetfulness once each quarter. And so just an example of what I'm talking about. Instead of just seeking information, reading information, and then leaving that, building into your daily game plan for life specific and measurable things that you can do that will make a difference. The second facet of the game plan for life deals with the family plan. First of all, we encourage these men, especially those who have a godly background, not to take for granted the heritage that they're blessed with, the family name. Proverbs 22, 7 tells us that a good name is rather to be had than great riches. Of all the gifts I've ever received in my life, the most precious to me is actually not anything of monetary value. It's something that my father gave me on my 12th, uh, at Christmas when I was 12 years old. A little plaque with my name inscribed at the top simply said, you got it from your father. It was all he had to give. So it's yours to use and cherish for as long as you may live. If you lose the watch he gave you, it can always be replaced. But a black mark on your name, son, can never be erased. It was clean the day you took it and a worthy name to bear. When you got it from your father, there was no dishonor there. So make sure you guard it wisely and after all is said and done, you'll be glad the name is spotless when you give it to your son. That meant more to me than any amount of money I could have possibly imagined when on November the 6th, 2003, I saw my dad's lifeless body laying there on the hospital bed. He gave me something more precious than silver and gold, a godly name. And so when we talk about our family plan, we begin with the heritage that we've been blessed with and understanding what a blessing it is to have a godly name. I'm so glad to be able to pass a good name onto my son. And by the way, it's good to have Sean Iron. Uh, Jim and, and D.R. with us today. Uh, 
their daughter, his daughter and their granddaughter uh, will be marrying my son next month. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful for this occasion. And I'm thankful that, that God willing, Caleb will carry on a godly name that his grandfather gave to me and that I'm hoping to give to him. The value of a good name. The family plan also consists of a focus upon our wife and our children. Love your wife and nurture your children. Ephesians chapter 5 and and chapter 6. Love your wife and nurture your children. Be the spiritual servant leader in your home. Practical application. Memorize and implement the biblical definition of man. We talked about that this morning. That real men, biblical men, accept responsibility, reject passivity, lead courageously, and invest eternally. And as was discussed, I would encourage you to use that as a filter in your discipline. So that as you discipline your young men, those young boys, you begin to mold them into sound, biblical, godly men. And we encourage the men we're working with to do that. Then guard your home. Guard your home. I shared with Jacksonville College students yesterday, this this colleague of mine that that is helping me with with this book project, actually. His name is Roger Smithson. He's he's an executive, works with uh, with Buckman Chemical, but he's a big game hunter. Uh, His forte really is the bighorn sheep. He's got a couple of those in the Boone and Crockett record books. He's hunted, uh, I think there are four major types of bighorn rams. He's killed three of those, and he's working on the fourth, so he's got the, the grand slam, if you will. But he is an avid big game hunter. He goes all over the world hunting big game. Several years ago, he was in Montana elk hunting. He said he heard something behind him that was seemed like a ways off, and then he didn't hear any sound whatsoever, but it was almost as big a sense of presence. You know, there's this eeriness that you really can't put in words. And he said finally it became so intense that he immediately whirled around And when he did, he shot from the hip and killed a mountain lion that was in stealth mode four steps behind him. Satan works that way, doesn't he? 1 Peter 5a, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Guarding our home is of paramount importance to biblical manhood. Being aware of what's going on, the attacks that are coming to our home. As we talked about this morning, Adam, where was he when... When his wife Eve was being attacked by the serpent, he was standing there watching passively. And so we talk about the importance of guarding our home, being sober, being aware, understanding our, the level of our wife's emotional bank account, as Gary Smalley would put it. Understanding our children's activities and their, their internet usage and other aspects of our home, building that nurturing environment in our home. Man, when's the last time you, uh, you bought your wife flowers or took her on a date? Being aware of that emotional bank account. And so we talk about some very practical things to do along those lines. Paying attention to the little things of life. Building that godly environment. Nurturing our children. John Wooden states, it's the small things that are important. Little things make big things happen. You know, it's often said that hurricanes and tornadoes get all the press, but termites do more damage on an annual basis than the other two combined. <laughs> we're aware of the tornadoes. We're aware of the hurricanes. We're aware of the big things, but are we aware of those small little things that are chipping away, eating away at the foundation of our home? 
So we teach prioritize time and energy with your family, and discipleship starts in the home. Prioritize time and energy with your family. Of all these tasks, remember all these tasks that we have to do, our family has got to be at the top. The COO of Coca-Cola Company was addressing a, a group of students a number of years ago, and he said, you know, uh, uh, the, the tasks that we have in life are much like balls. He said, now, the work ball is rubber. It will always bounce back. But your faith and your family are crystal. And if you drop those balls, they will shatter. When it comes to prioritization, how important it is that we prioritize the time with our family. And I say this to ministers because sometimes we're the worst at it. We pastor everyone except our family. Oh, may God help us prioritize our wife and our children. It was interesting, uh, several years ago I had a, a life board, board member come in my office, Bob Williams. And Bob was a farmer. And he would often say, now boys, this is straight from the tractor seat. You know, and as soon as he'd say that, you know, you, were, you knew you were about to get some, some wisdom. Because he was always full of wisdom, but, but he was a farmer. And he said, how are you doing? He said, well, I said, well, I'm busy. You know, there's certainly a lot going on. He said, well, are you taking care of your family the way you need to? And I said, well, as far as I know, I try to prioritize that. And he said, well, make sure you do. And then he went on to tell me a story about something that had happened to him when he was 10 years old. He said, now, I know my daddy loved me. There was no doubt about that. Daddy worked hard. And he said, he took care of our family. But he said, you know, I was 10 years old. Daddy promised me that he'd build me a playhouse. And this is a 67-year-old man now talking about something that happened 57 years ago when he was 10. He said, Daddy told me he'd build me a playhouse. And with a tear running down his cheek, this old rough farmer, he said, but you know, he never did build me that playhouse. I just found that interesting. 57 years later, this old tough farmer has got a tear rolling down his cheek because his daddy promised him something that he did not do. That resonated with me, and I think about that often. Have you promised your children something and not done it? Oh my, how to prioritize time with our children. If you looked at page 41, you can just see some practical things that, that I included uh, as an example uh, in my life plan that, that I want to focus on as it relates to this family fundamental. On page 41, date my wife once per week and share a time of devotion. Pray together with my wife daily. Disciple my wife to develop the practice of spiritual disciplines. Read the book Desiring God with my wife. That, these are this year's goals. Wash my wife's car and fill up with gas weekly. I know that sounds trite, but you know that means the world to her. It lets her know that she's important. Love her biblically and extravagantly. Surprise my wife with thoughtful notes, flowers at least once a month. Take an annual trip together. Now, these are things that, that I incorporate in my day planner. I'll look at my game plan for life and say, what do I need to do? Because I'll tell you, I often get caught up in the thick of thin things. And my life plan brings me back to what's important. With my children, reestablish our family devotion times during weekday mornings. We have four children, three that are in college, one that's an eighth grader, and they're going in all different directions. And I want to tell you, sometimes it's very difficult to have that, that devotion time, but we've got to make that priority. Engage in a personal one-on-one -on -one time outside the home at least once per month with each child. Disciple my children to develop the practice of spiritual disciplines. Teach them a strong work ethic and to manage money well. 
With my extended, my extended family, I built into my plan, call my mother at least twice a week, my sister once per week, my other family members periodically. So again, just practical things that you think, well, that's just common sense, yeah? But you know, success is 80% behavior and 20% uh, or, or it's 20% head knowledge, 80% behavior. How, how often are we doing the things that we've identified in this big task list that are really important? How, how often are we doing those? How intentional are we about doing those? Well, the game plan for life is to bring that intentionality. Number three, a friend's plan. Be a true friend. Love people by pushing them closer to Christ. Again, that is really the process of discipleship. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, Solomon writes, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Are we sharpening men? Are we in the people business? Are we being intentional about making friends? Are we being sensitive to opportunities to be salt and light? What about practical application? One of the things that we encourage these men to do that we're working with is what we call a two for Tuesday. And that is every Tuesday to call two friends that you haven't heard from in, in 10, 15, 20 years. Now that process is quite amazing. Uh, I wish I could share the, the, the stories of, of what it's been like to contact former coworkers before I entered ministry that I knew in the corporate world and say, how are you doing? How could I pray for you? Most of the time you just listen because after you call, they do most of the talking. But every Tuesday, just, just a two-minute call to check. Now, a lot of times it, it ends up a lot more than two minutes. Uh, I'll have to acknowledge that. But it's a special time. Prioritizing people. That's just an example of an exercise that's really been a blessing. And then do life with the men that we're discipling. Now, Roger and I are taking on about six men in each of our cohorts, and it's typically about a year. And what we, what we just about have to do is we divide the men between us, three each, so that we can do life together through this process. It's not just an academic exercise. It shouldn't be an academic exercise. It should be life on life, and it's very difficult to invest in more than three men at a single time. But doing life together, and so practically... Uh, you can see the, the friends plan on page 43, page 42 and 43. I will contact two friends each week. I will perpetually compile a list of men to disciple and invest in. I will strive to, to try to be the kind of friend that I want to have and to serve others. So, again, bringing that down to a practical common denominator. Number four, the financial plan. First of all, acknowledge that it all belongs to God. Now, again, I'm sharing with you some of the things that, that we, we address with these men, and I'm, I'm sharing it with you at a very high level, and this is very difficult to do in, in a one-hour session, but hopefully you're at least being exposed to, to the process uh, that we've talked about this week. First of all, acknowledge that everything belongs to God. Secondly, sign the financial covenant surrendering all assets to God. If you looked at page 45 in your handout in the booklet, You'll see a covenant, a financial covenant with God, and, and we encourage them to sign this, to prayerfully consider this, and actually to sign this, to formalize this process of recognizing that we don't own anything, that God owns it all. And we borrowed this from our friend Randy, Al, uh, Randy Alcorn with uh, Eternal Perspective Ministries. But again, formalizing the fact that, look, 
We're simply God's stewards. And what is stewardship? What, what, what is stewardship? How would you define stewardship? Well, I like Chris Brown's definition that stewardship is managing God's resources, God's way for God's glory. And so we go through a process of trying to teach them how to do that. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell in. It all belongs to God. Now, from a practical application standpoint, there's, there's quite a bit of work to do here because of the way that most people have been indoctrinated about how to manage God's resources. The typical financial priority pipeline, as you see on page 23, the first priority is usually to live. We have to live, pay rent, feed our kids, among a million other things. Secondly, oh, we have to pay debts and taxes. If we don't, creditors will come looking, so we pay them. Priority number three is typically grow. We want to save for the future, and if we have margin, we'll try to put some money back. And then the last priority is what? Give. And most people's financial pipeline, that's what it looks like. Live, owe, grow, and give. And so what we do is we squeeze out everything that we can, and if we have some margin on Sunday, we give. But what should our priority pipeline look like? This puts all the pressure at the bottom. It puts all the pressure on the giving facet. And and really, there are only four things we can do with money. And this is what we teach them. This is from Ron Blue uh, and his philosophy through Crown Financial Ministries and uh, and and the Financial Kingdom Advisors curriculum that he teaches. But basically, there's only four things we can do with money. And that is live, give, grow, and owe. And so most people prioritize that, live, owe, grow, and give. But based upon the teachings of God's Word, the biblically wise financial priority pipeline begins with give, then grow, then owe, and then live. Give, grow, owe, and live, as you see on page 24. Now, what does this do? Well, this squeezes out, it puts pressure on our lifestyle instead of on our giving. And that's just the opposite of what most people do. They put the pressure on their giving instead of on their lifestyle. But that's not biblical. Based upon the teachings of God's word, we prioritize our eternal portfolio before anything else. But will I have enough? There's a new concept that that I find quite interesting and it's called uh, being an economic atheist. Now, we would never say we're an atheist. But based upon the way that we think sometimes, would we be an economic atheist? Wondering, will God take care of me? If I prioritize giving, will God take care of me? Well, he's tried and proven, is he not? So, we focus on giving. We focus on growing. These two uses of money are productive and should come out of our first fruits. That is good Biblical stewardship. So we focus first on the eternal portfolio. We focus secondly on the earthly portfolio, putting back a portion of everything that we make in savings. The owe component is obligatory. We all will owe something. We will owe taxes. If you've compromised the living aspect of using money, you'll owe debt. And so we all owe. We have to pay that. It's our obligation to pay that. It's it's our biblical mandate to pay that. But then the last facet of this pipeline would be the living. This use of money is consumptive. 
But by tending to the other areas first and intentionally, we can freely enjoy what is left in the live portion without fear or guilt. That is God's priority pipeline when it comes to finances, and that's what we teach these men. So, give liberally of the first fruits. We encourage them to be very intentional about the way that they give. As John Ortberg said, when it comes to a tithe, it is a wonderful floor, but it is a terrible ceiling on our giving. And so what we encourage these men to do is, is if you're giving a tithe, that's great, fantastic, continue to do that. But every time God gives you an, an annual increase or, or any other type of increase, consider giving 1% more to the kingdom of God, methodically, over the next 25, 30 years. Because here's what will happen. If we give out of that increase, assuming that we're already tithing, if we give out of that increase methodically and intentionally, we won't even miss it, will we? You get a 4% raise at work, give 1% of that back to the kingdom of God. Grow that eternal portfolio while you're still growing that earthly portfolio. But first, prioritize your giving to God. Be intentional about it. Be methodical about it. Then we teach them, based upon just good sound stewardship principles, to establish an emergency fund of three to six months of expenses, and then to establish a biblically responsible investing plan. Now, now this is a new concept that I'm still um, learning more and more about. But does God care what you do with the other, assuming you, you just tithe, does God care what you do with the other 90%? Well, absolutely he does. It belongs to him too, doesn't it? It's not just 10% that belongs to God. It all belongs to him. He's made you his steward. And our job is to manage God's resources, God's way for God's glory. Do you think us investing in companies that are in the alcohol and tobacco industry is bringing glory to God. Do you think that us investing in companies that are, are participating in other vices is bringing glory to God? Yet, do you know where your money's invested? Do you know? Do you care? And so what we're trying to teach is biblically responsible investing. And now we have at our disposal, at our disposal indexes that will tell us how companies are investing our money. I was meeting with a financial advisor last month, and he said one of the first questions that I, I get when I meet with, with Christians about investing, and I introduce the concept of biblically responsible investing, what do you think the first question is going to be back? Somebody. How well do they do? Okay. What type of return will I see? Will it be as good as, as what I have now? And he said the first thing I want to say to that individual is does it matter? He's not, I don't say that. But the first thing I want to say to Christian people is does it matter? In other words, if you're getting a higher return, investing in any and everything, regardless as to whether it glorifies God, does it even matter? The great thing is, there's now empirical data to show that biblically responsible investing it performs at least as well, if not better than, any other type of investing. And so what we want to teach these men is to understand that God not only owns 10% of what you have, He owns 90, the other 90% as well, and be very responsible about where you're investing those dollars. By the way, I would a whole lot rather invest in something that is biblically responsible and have God's favor than not. Think about that. Biblically responsible investing. And then finally, strive to live debt-free. This means no car loan. 
This means no boat loan. This means no credit card debt. This means we strive for no house loan. We strive to owe no man anything living. I know I sound like Dave Ramsey now, but, <laughs> but there's merit to that. There's merit to that as we build that into our game plan for life. If you look on page 43, you can see pragmatically um, with, with my financial plan, just an example of what, what I'm talking about. Um, I look for ways to increase my eternal portfolio while minimizing my earthly portfolio, pay, uh, pay off all real estate investments in my earthly portfolio within the next 10 years, maintain three to six months living expenses, maintain adequate life insurance, develop a 10-year financial plan, pray and fast over any potential investment opportunity. These are just things to guide me, to, to keep me on track. So that of all these important things that I have, as I prioritize those, I get it in right. Finally, back on page 25, the fitness F, the fitness plan. Through scripture, we know that God values our bodies. God the Father created our bodies. God the Son redeemed them. And God the Holy Spirit indwells them. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And this makes our body the very temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Now notice, it's not described as a house. It's not described as a residence. It is described as a temple. Thus, we have an inherent responsibility to take care of and honor God's temple. So, this fact affects how we act, think, and talk. When we let into the temple through our, our, it affects what we let into the temple, excuse me, through our eyes. What we let into the temple through our eyes is important. What we let into the temple through our ears is important. And yes, what we let into the temple through our mouths is important. This morning we sang the song, Take Time to Be Holy, understanding that even our bodies are the temple, the house, the the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, and how we maintain our temple is important. Again, as I have mentioned this week, this is not about vanity, but this is about energy to do what God has called us to do. Certainly God will never leave us, but we can grieve Him, according to Ephesians chapter 4. And we are to use our bodies and our spiritual gifts to achieve God's will for our lives. So practical application. Spiritually speaking, when it comes to our spiritual fitness, fitness is not just physical, it's spiritual as well. Be sober, guard your heart and guard your mind. In our leadership class, just this afternoon, before we came in here, we were talking about uh, Blackaby and Blackaby's uh, 2001 and revised 2011 spiritual leadership. And according to Blackaby and Blackaby, they assert that the size of the assignment that God gives you is commensurate with the size of your character. There is no substitute for character. Remember that second quadrant of the Jahari window that we talked about. Things that I know, but you don't know. We call it a facade. In psychology, we refer to it as a facade. As a facade. It's there that character becomes so important. Because if we want God to use us, it's a matter of being spiritually fit. 
And that begins with fostering a godly character, being the same person in private as we are in public, so that there is no facade. Character counts, guarding your heart and your mind. What if someone judged our character based upon our internet searches for the last five years? What type of character would they see? When I traveled extensively in in corporate America, I had a practice that helped me, because I'll be honest, as as a young man, temptation uh, runs rampant, still does for that matter. I remember an 82-year-old deacon once being asked, at what point was sexual temptation not a problem for you? He said, I don't know, I'm not that old yet. For us men, let's be honest, it's every man's battle. And we're very very, um, pointed with this as we train these men. But one of the practices that helped me uh, maintain my character, when I was at a hotel room 2,000 miles from home, by myself on a business call, was to set my family's picture on top of that TV. There was my wife and there were my precious children. Just a very practical thing that helped me in that quadrant two dilemma of being the man and not being passive when it came to guarding my spiritual fitness. Number two, have a funeral every day and crucify the flesh. Have a funeral every day. I first heard that from Patrick Morley. Have a funeral every day. Crucify the flesh. Is that not what Jesus did in Gethsemane? Father, not my will, not the will of the flesh, but thy will be done. Now I'm going to go to Medlin for just a minute when it comes to practical application and talk about the physical. Eat healthy. Yes, we cover this as we talk with these men. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, it's been said one cheeseburger won't hurt you, but it's death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's, it's just one after another, after another, after another, and lulling ourselves into thinking it, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Now, I'm not talking about whether you eat pork or shellfish, you know. Although I will say, the more I study the the Levitical diet, the more convinced I am that that God really knows what he's talking about when it comes to our health. I mean, the the more I learn about what a pig eats, what a catfish eats, the less I want to eat them. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not being legalistic. If if, if you want to go to Stacy's Barbecue or the Catfish King afterwards, I, I will not have a breach of fellowship with you. I promise you that. But the more that I learn about the Levitical diet, the more I embrace it because I see that God's the manufacturers. And if we follow the manufacturer's instructions, we typically run better. And so I, I don't think, I don't want to discredit that. I don't want to be legalistic either. But let's just suffice it to say we ought to eat healthy. Should we not? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it does matter what goes into our bodies. And yes, that's difficult. And yes, I know as a Baptist, this is a tough subject for all of us. I mean, with all the ice cream socials and dinners on the ground and all the, the you know, coffee and donuts for Sunday school, we don't exactly help ourselves as Baptists, do we? Stay healthy. It was an interesting uh, article that I, I saw in the Chicago Sun-Times that Baptists are among the most obese people in the world. <laughs> and they, they, they sized it up because Baptists avoid drinking and they avoid smoking. And so I guess... Eating is our vice. I don't know what what the the reason for that is. But they found that 27% of us are obese compared to 1% of Jews and less than 1% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. 
Now, I'm not going to charge anything for that. That's just parenthetical, just, just so you know. Practically speaking, when it comes to our fitness, uh, I do think it is something that we need to prioritize. And so uh, in my game plan for life, I failed to write down the, the page number there, forgive me. I was going to show you, uh, okay, pages 38 and 39. Our fitness is not just physical, it's mental and emotional. And so one of the things that I built into my plan on page 38 was to increase my emotional intelligence, something that I realized I need to do. Because Jesus was in the people business, I need to understand people, and emotional intelligence is is extremely important in ministry. Physically, maintain a body weight of 215 pounds with a body mass index in the 25th percentile of men my age. Again, something very measurable. Increase strength and endurance. And then at the bottom, mental and emotional, seek forgiveness from people who hold grudges against me. I want to tell you, I know there are people holding grudges against me that haven't asked for forgiveness, but simply because of some leadership changes that I've made through the years where I had to make some tough calls, there have been people that I know are holding grudges against me. And I spend a lot of energy thinking about that because I don't want to do that. I want to get along peaceably with all men. And so in my plan this year, I built in that I would contact those people and I would ask forgiveness. As I sought the Lord, thinking about all the things I needed to do, that was impressed upon me. I felt compelled to do that. And the first thing that I told the Lord in my spirit was, I don't want to do that. I don't feel that I owe them an apology. And then the Lord hit me over the head with a two-by-four by convicting me. I was spending so much energy thinking about that. And so I did in the spirit what I didn't want to do in the flesh. And I contacted a number of people that had been affected by leadership decisions that I made through the years that I felt like were right to make, but I knew that they had been hurt. And you know, the great thing about that is it has brought such release to act, to, to, to humbly ask, and I mean to the best of my ability to be genuine, to humbly ask for forgiveness for hurting them in the consequential pain. And God has given me such a release from that that I can't even begin to describe it. So when we talk about fitness, it is so much more than, than physical fitness, but, but mental fitness and emotional fitness and anything in your life that prohibits you from being all that God is calling you to be. Now, as we draw to a close, we've had four sessions, and this one I know was different. And if you were not in the first three, God bless you for enduring this one. And I know this is kind of difficult as we really try to bring it down to where the rubber meets the road. But in conclusion, just to recap our time together uh, this week, we began with the importance of planning, understanding that planning is biblical, that it all begins with God and it all ends with God. We're not talking about conjuring something up of our own. We establish the fact that life is short. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, Moses admonishes us to number our days. By the way, Uh, Throughout the the book there, you've got Psalm chapter 90, verse 1, Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. We also looked at how that little happens without intentionality. If we don't live life on purpose, we're probably not nearly as effective as we could be. And by planning, we can spend our time and energy on the things that matter most. And that requires us to practice this concept of strategic neglect. Again, we go back to the chimney of task. 
and will never, ever be able to accomplish all the tasks that there are to do. And so our ability to prioritize based upon seeking God and what's important to Him and strategically neglecting the rest is of paramount importance. It's called the power of positive quitting. And that's difficult for us to do sometimes. I got caught in this conundrum of thinking if I didn't accomplish everything there was over here to accomplish, I had failed. And I constantly found myself frustrated. The way to combat that is through biblical planning. In the second session, we looked at the tyranny of the urgent and how that Jesus combated that by submitting to God's plan each and every day, seeking God's will above all things. We saw how that Jesus maintained a close relationship with the Father and prayerfully waited for his leadership each and every day, day by day by day, understanding the master plan. But Father, what do you want me to do today that funnels into your grand plan? And then we talked about how that Jesus invites us to abide in him and allowing him to produce that fruit through us. We looked in the third session at how that time is like money. We can spend it wasted, hoard it, or invest it. But if we invest our lives, it will, like money, produce fruit for years to come. We looked at how children do what feels good, but men plan and are mature enough to be disciplined to live out that plan. We talked about the biblical definition of manhood and what that looks like in life color. Men accept responsibility, reject passivity, lead courageously, and invest eternally. We talked about the importance of abiding in Christ, waiting for His instructions, seeking His Word with an attitude of prayer, inspecting what He expects, and being men of integrity, and then writing that down and building that into a game plan for life. Well, to overcome the tyranny of the urgent and to invest our lives in what matters most, I submit that we need to be very serious and intentional about the way we approach it. And I submit the way to do that, and hopefully what will help you do that, is to put together a game plan for life. I've included an example for you on page 32. We went through part of that today, but hopefully that will give you something to look to to uh, crystallize some of what we've talked about this week. You know, 20 years from now, you'll, you'll not be disappointed so much by what you did as by what you didn't do. And, and I think if, if we could talk to, to some of you in this uh, assembly today that, that are in the, the later part of the third and fourth quarters of life, that, that you would concede that fact. Probably not going to be regretting so much what we did as what we did not do. Oh, that we can stop and call time out. Evaluate what God would have us to do. Get serious about it. Write it down and live it out day after day after day. Do it. And someday there will come a day that will be a payday. For all the yesterdays we've been focused on the current day. It will not only give value to today but will make each future day outshine yesterday. Every day, going to the Father, helping the, letting the Holy Spirit help us prioritize what's truly important and investing all of our energy into that intentionality. That's what we mean when we say a game plan for life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us this week together. Lord, 
may we recognize that you have a plan. That when we talk about planning, it really is a matter of submitting to your plan. Of recognizing that as the creator of the universe, you're the creator of our lives and all that there is. You're a sovereign God. Your will will be done. The only question is, will you use us to do it? I pray that through these lectures this week, maybe we've seen just a little insight as to how serious we should take our role in your plan. That instead of just breathing in, breathing out, recycling air, we should be very intentional about this little dash of time that you've given us. For truly, life is a weaver's shuttle, as Job described it. Life is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Life really is a dash on the timeline of eternity. Lord, help us realize just how short that life is and make the most of all 1,440 minutes of every day to bring honor and glory to your name. And it's in that name that we pray.